editor and amazing guy in general, Austin Ross, to discuss his latest book, Gloria Patri. Before diving into it, I'd love to ask all of you listeners out there to check out our Patreon to help keep this podcast going. You can find a link for it on our Twitter at PodHealing or just Google it. That always works for me. And I always love it when people leave textual healing a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But back to this episode, it's random, informative, and completely my vibe, and I hope it is yours as well. Aside from odd music interjections, Austin and I mainly discuss political fringe groups due to his provocative novel, Gloria Patri, a story that follows a man who gets involved in domestic terrorism, the people around him, and the aftermath. But not to give the plot away or any of our fun conversation, here's Austin. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. All right, finally. <laughs> awesome. You kind of totally caught that. me off guard. I, <laughs> I was like starting to like browse, and I was starting to look up uh, <laughs> best albums of all time because of an email exchange I was nice. having. Which ones are the best ones? You know, honestly, Rolling Stone has 500 listed, so... <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. Some of them I haven't even heard of, so I feel like I'm not even allowed to really be hosting this podcast anymore. <laughs> Until you br- like brush up on your knowledge, I guess. Yeah, like, you know, it has, like, boys to men on here and the Ronettes, and it's like, you know, this is such a wide array, like, who the hell knows all these albums? <laughs> I know. But no, I, I was having a whole email exchange because I have someone who's reading my book, and uh-huh. it is a lot about music. See, I finally thought, hey, I'll write a book that has to do with music and literature because I already host a podcast like that. There you go. And um, one of the blurbers was talking about Fleetwood Mac and they were saying like, oh, what Fleetwood Mac stories do you have? And one of them (laughs) consisted of how I first learned about them. And I had a really weird hipster friend like when I was younger who was like, this is the greatest album ever and made me listen to Rumors for, like, three straight hours. (laughs) That's funny. Man. Yes, and then Blurber had a story of that's a song that his ex-girlfriend played for him right before she broke up with him, like uh, Silver Springs. Ah, that seems fitting. I know, I was just like, ooh, (laughs) that took planning. (laughs) Like, that might just be the best way ever to break up with someone. Don't even say it. Just turn the song on and leave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> have you ever had anything like that? Because, like, I'm just dying. Like, do people have stories like that? <laughs> no, I don't. No, no, not interesting enough for anything like that. Same but here. I don't even have an interesting story about how I learned about Fleetwood Mac. It's just like, they're a band. I'm like, okay. <laughs> See, I just had someone... Wow, my life sounds so goddamn suburban. I used to hang out with people at our local Denny's because uh, I'm from the suburbs, nice. if you didn't know that. <laughs> and that was the only place you could stay out all night. And, like, this person basically thought that they were, like, in Crosby, Stills, and Nash and just played that role and <laughs> always had, like, a guitar on him at all times. He was the person... He was basically Ryan Gosling and Barbie, ready to play guitar uh, at you at no, any time. I see. I see one of those guys. Yeah, and he just kind of like pulled out rumors like it was an epiphany. Be like, here you go, gift from the gods, all of you who have not listened to this. What was your reaction to that album? I'm curious. 
at first I was just like, meh. But now, well, that was my reaction to a lot of stuff he'd kind yeah. of throw to us. So I just kind of was like, I was half listening. I mm-hmm. was like, uh, just another similar thing he always plays. Mm-hmm. But no, now I love it. And I actually, I think I posted on Twitter the one story I sent to the person on email that no, I actually ended up liking it so much that I give that album to somebody every time I find out that they found like they got their new record player or something. Ah, interesting. It became a tradition because I actually had like six copies of it because I was a dumpster wow. diving hipster. Ah, interesting. Okay, okay. Huh. Yeah, so they're all like used for, shitty ones. Like, so dumpster diving, because I knew, <laughs> I've known a few dumpster divers as well. So like, is it food as well or oh, non-food no. items? Okay, because right. I used to know somebody who would go for like pack, you know, packaged food, and I was like, "How in the world are you doing this? Like, this is insane." But that is bravery. Yes, no, I or found stupidity. out an atrocity really. That half-priced books. Have you heard of that story? Yes. They, have it uh-huh. right. they throw away their books if they're not selling at a certain time, huh. and me being the mangy little hipster I was, I was just like, how dare they? I'm going to go grab some free books. Interesting. And they happen to have a lot of records in there, too. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Well, honestly, that's better than returning books, because returns are just awful. But, um, yeah. That that I I can so agree with that. (laughs) As a publisher, I'm sorry, I just got a shit ton of returns. Oh, my gosh. It's horrible, isn't it? I think it's a scam right here. We really need to talk about bookstores here. What the hell are you doing to us? (laughs) Well, it's like how many other industries are there that allow this kind of, like, return, just rampant return policy? I don't know. Like, I get get it on some level, but, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's – especially for indie presses, like, small indie presses, it just kills them. Um, And I'm just like, you got to stop doing that. I don't know. Like, try and sell the books. I don't know. And they refuse to order unless you have that uh, yeah, option to return. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just had an author do a tour. It was a big one. But now that the tour is over, I I must have 50 copies of his book sent back to me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, like, yeah. it's such a very awkward situation because, like, we paid mm-hmm. all the royalties for those mm-hmm. books and everything, too. And it's like... Thank you, society, for fucking us over for bringing <laughs> you literature. I know, right? Yeah. It's, I don't yeah. think most people know that, though. Yeah. It's not, not a great problem to have. Yeah. I feel like someone needs to blow the lid off that story. Mm. Let the masses know, hey, it's not <laughs> just Amazon who's fucking you over. It's all yeah. stores. It is true. Yeah. So, welcome to the show. I... Hope you enjoyed that really weird preamble. <laughs> um, would you like to tell everybody who you are? Sure. Uh, I am Austin Ross. I am a writer of sorts. Uh, <laughs> I write mostly fiction uh, and essays. Uh, they've been in, you know, Publishers Weekly, Literary Hub, uh, had, I don't know, a bunch of other places. Um, and my new no- my new novel, my only novel, debut novel, is out now from Malarkey Books. It's called Gloria Patri, uh, and that is about uh, religious extremism and domestic terrorism. So it's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> it's about um, it's really about this family, the Becker family, and the father and son of this family die on the same day, and the mother and the daughter 
kind of go on this cross-country road trip to sort of collect their remains and kind of figure out what happened. And along the way, they learn all these secrets about each other and their family, uh, and they get pulled into the gravity of essentially Solomon the Sun had fallen into this militia extremist group, uh, and they sort of fall into the gravity of that group. Um, and so things kind of turn turn violent. So it sort of explores the intersection of extremism and terrorism and America and I don't know, all that stuff. But I really like it when debut authors write something that is not autofiction. Hmm. <laughs> and y- you came up with such a unique story, and I was wondering how, wh- wh- where did you find that story idea? Uh, yeah, so this, uh, it's funny you <laughs> you say this isn't autofiction, because part of it actually kind of is autofiction. Oh, do in you that, know what? <laughs> um, I know, right? <laughs> so I've been trying to write, like, a version of this book for, like, I don't know, maybe 20 years, honestly. Um, and so growing up, my family and this other family were in this really isolationist home church for about three or four years, and it was not a happy time, as you might imagine, if you've read the book. Or if you haven't read the book, right? Um, and so I, I've been trying to write a book to sort of grapple with some of this, of like what what in the world happened, and um, and all of that, sort of unpacking it. Um, and it never really worked um, because I, I think I realized like I can I enjoy reading kind of those quiet novels about like a family, you know, like a Jane Smiley kind of novel, um, but like I can't. I couldn't really write it. Like, it just didn't really work. Like, I would get 30,000-ish words into a draft, and it just kind of fell apart. And then I was like, at some point in, I think it was 2019, I came up with this idea of, like, well, where does, you know, where would this sort of isolationist, extremist viewpoint go? I was like, well, it could go in a number of directions. But one is, like, domestic terrorism. Like, you know, think about Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and all this stuff happening. Um, And so then I was like, okay, that kind of gives me an element of plot to sort of be the North star to propel me towards the finish line. And so that was really what, how I finished writing the novel was really fictionalizing a whole bunch of it. Um, and adding in this, you know, completely fictional element of, uh, this militia extremist group. So. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen, you've definitely written quite a bit and you've been part of the literary world for a while. I mean, you work for a big publisher and everything. Why is it taking you so long to write your debut? Um, well, part of it was uh, I didn't really know what exactly I was going to write uh, for like a novel length because, you know, like I said, I'd been trying to write it and it just wasn't working. And so um, I was sort of exploring like, well, am I, you know, should I try to put together like a short story collection or something like that? Um and so really the impetus for the novel coming about was in 2019, I went to Breadloaf, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and uh, you can set up these like 10 minute meetings with agents and stuff. And, you know, usually, you know, some people will use it to like network for jobs or whatever, but usually people will like pitch whatever it is they're working on to an agent, try to like make it that way. Right. Um, and so I was like, oh, I don't really have anything I'm working on. Like, I don't have an idea like I have short stories that I've written I don't really have an idea of what a collection would necessarily look like um but I had this novel I'd been working on 
And so really it was at the conference that I was like, I came up with the idea of this militia kind of working its way into the book. And so I pitched it to this agent and he really loved it. And, um, like I gave him a story to read sample story and he emailed me a couple hours later and said, I really love the story. I can't wait to read the book. And then I worked on the book. Like I would get up at four thirty every day for about a year to write this novel. Uh, I would write 2000 words for the first draft. And then I threw out the first draft and started all over again with the second draft. Cause I, I kind of knew where the story was, was going. Uh, but I would do this for, for over a year and I went through probably, I don't know, 15 drafts or so before I had something I, I felt like, okay, I can send this off to this agent. I sent it off to the agent and he emailed me back within minutes and said, you know, I'm, I'm a little buried just now, but I'm excited to get to it. And I literally never heard another word from him again. <laughs> so, uh, so that's really how the novel came about. Yes, I know. <laughs> that's really how the novel came about was I, I, I felt like, oh, this is my big chance. And then it turned out to, in fact, not be necessarily, not that not the malarkey books is like, uh, nobody, but like, it's not, you know, I, from based on that meeting with that agent, I was practicing my national book of words, acceptance speech, you know, <laughs> aren't we all, I know. Right. But your process fascinates me. Like <laughs> you were able to do like 2000 words a day, every day. Well, I was like, I mean, I was motivated. I was like, this is my shot. You know, I am going to do everything I can. Cause I have young kids. And I was like, the only time I can really, cause late at night, like after they're asleep, I'm like brain dead. I can't focus on writing for long periods of time. I would do editing at night. Um, but then in terms of writing, I was like, okay, I have to get up early in the morning basically before they're awake. Um, and so I, I just kind of like decided to do it uh <laughs> i don't know like, uh how yeah. did you will yourself to like just like were you just jacked up on coffee the entire time <laughs> i mean essentially yeah it was like me alone in a dark room like sh- you know shaking from the coffee but <laughs> trying to be quiet enough not to yeah. make anybody uh, exactly you're a very religious extremist <laughs> exactly um but yeah i mean i was essentially i was like motivated because you know, everybody, when I told people at Breadloaf, like, oh, this agent, like, he loved my story. He can't wait to read this book. Everybody was like, you have to send it to him, like, like get this done immediately, essentially, so he doesn't forget about you. So I was like, okay, like, I guess I do have to do that. So I wrote it very, very quickly, um, which I actually found to be very helpful. Like, um, I, I had been writing versions of this novel very slowly, but I think actually, like, kind of getting through a, a first draft as quickly as I can was actually very helpful. Um but yeah, I just kind of like decided to do it and then did it. I don't know. You're like a Nike commercial. <laughs> just do it. Yeah. So what else is your process? So you wake up at 4.30. Are you a handwriter or are you a typer? That's a I am not, thing for me. Yes, I am a typer. I cannot, I could not write 2,000 words in nearly the amount of time, like quickly enough that uh, I would need to be done before the kids wake up. So I, I type um, as quickly as I can. So I'm like... Ideally, and so I, I should preface this by saying I have not gotten up at 4.30 in a, a long time. Uh, nowadays, I'm like, uh, it's been a while since I've even done this, but like 5.30 is much more realistic for me right now. And it's more like 500 to 1,000 words, right? Um, so I'm not, I'm not on that same trajectory right now. Um, not like a Stephen King. You know, I think he writes like three or 4,000 words a day. That's but, why he's um, a book every year. And I know, right? But he also... More. He also doesn't have a day job. So, that, I mean, that is his day job, right? So, like, he just can do it all day, right? Um, that and make fun of, like, people on Twitter. Yes. I mean, 
that's what we all want to do, right? <laughs> Until it goes away. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, what will we do? Yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, ideally, I'm up, like I'm awake. I've set the coffee the night before, so I'm sitting down at the desk with a cup of coffee, kind of bleary-eyed, and I'm just like writing almost anything that comes to my mind, because um, that that sort of just propels me towards this space where I'm, I don't know, creatively open, so to speak. But that's the ideal. It doesn't always happen. I'm just imagining this, like, stark silence. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And it just, I'm trying to imagine even if coffee would give me enough of a jolt to wake (laughs) up. Like, I, I am the kind of person where, like, every morning I listen to either, like, a really good podcast or I have... I have a morning playlist thanks to mm. Spotify. Technology rules my life. Mm. Like, do you have a go-to? Like, or is it just the coffee? Are you just able to wake up and be like, do you meditate? Like, how, how do you just jump into writing? Uh, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just an anxious person. I just kind of wake up. Like, once the alarm, once the alarm goes off, if I'm in the right headspace which again i haven't i haven't gotten up to write like the only things i've written in the last several months have been like essays to places to try to pitch this book you know um so i haven't really written any fiction or anything like that in a while but um but i don't know i just kind of wake up and i get the coffee and i'm like i start working on something and usually it's like i I fool myself with these fake deadlines you know the agent thing felt like a real deadline so i was like i gotta i gotta get this thing done but like fake deadlines would be like, oh, like my workshop buddies, I said I would do a story, you know, send a story in for the next month's meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, I don't know, made up deadlines like that can can help uh, help me focus. But I don't know. You have kids, right? Mm-hmm. You should just give them the deadline. They will annoy you like crazy until it's done at that day. It is true. I, I, if they were awake, I wouldn't get anything done. Is the problem? It's true, but so. like they'll keep nagging and be like, "Is it done yet, Dad?" Well, the trouble, like, it is true. They're too young, though. Uh, <laughs> like one, our oldest is six, and our youngest is two, so they would oh, mostly be like climbing be all over me. Oh, oh, yeah, that is true. But not about the things you want them to be annoying about. <laughs> yeah, that is true. The, the youngest kid I deal with these days is ten, so uh, I don't know. That what would that would be a good yeah. If you told a ten-year-old like, "Hey, keep me accountable to this thing." They will be, like, on you about it, for sure. My 10-year-old but, nephew, he keeps me accountable to every little thing I have yes. planned over yes. the next year. Like, he has, like, a calendar, and he's like, do you have everything prepared? <laughs> I'm going to be leaving the country in a few weeks, and he actually, like, emailed me. He's like, do you have all the appropriate clothes you need? Wow. And it's like, see, you need that person. And you're like, yes. I need a little I need a 10-year-old's email. Yes. Yeah. I need a 10-year-old manager. <laughs> Hey, they're the best managers. They have nothing else going on in their hey, mind except for TikTok. That's true. Yeah. So how did you find Malarkey Books? Uh, I had uh, I had published a couple of stories, actually, with Alan. Alan Good, he runs Malarkey Books. Um, so I published a few stories with him previously. Uh, I forget how many. I don't know, two or three maybe even. And then I saw... Like I knew that from seeing seeing their books out, um, I liked the way that they looked. Um, I think they do a really good job with 
you know, cover design and uh, also like dimensions of the book and the type of paper they use and typesetting and all that stuff. It looks, it feels very professional, I think. Um, and so they were open for submissions and I was like, hey, you know, are you interested in this thing? Because I, I had been in the query trenches for two or three years at that point and I'd sent it to, you know, some other presses and if you've ever queried something, it's like, you know, you get the, the most beautiful feedback imaginable. Like, oh, I love this book, but it's a no. Um, it's like one of those rejections that feels like, oh, is this an acceptance? No, no, it's not. Um, but but then Alan really loved it and wanted to publish it and was like, all right, let's do it. Like, I'm just checking out their catalog and, wow, just kind of stands out from what, like, Malarkey tends to do. Did you have to pitch him? I sent it in. They were open for submissions, and I just sent it in, like, kind of cold turkey. Just, like, I didn't tell Alan I was sending it in. I just sent it in through their submission system. Um, and, you know, he read it. So, yeah, it does it, it does kind of feel a little bit different from some of the other stuff they do. It's not as, like, weird or, like... Um, it sounds fringe. Yeah. Yes. Like, a lot of malarkey titles are really... I mean, they're all really great. But this one is not quite as, like, I don't know, out there, like, indie lit, maybe. I don't know. That's what I was going to say, is that, like, a lot of those books that you could be like, I could totally understand why they're being overlooked by larger publishers. Mm-hmm. But yours is definitely, I don't want to call it mainstream, because that makes it sound vanilla. But you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now I just need to know, what the hell did you write on your cover letter that made him be like, this, <laughs> this is the book I want? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was the same... I mean, apart from, like, I knew Alan, right? Um, so there was that. But it was the same cover letter I'd used before. Although I'd been, I don't know, I've, I feel like if you've queried, you know, I, I don't know. I, I always would revise my cover letter based on, hey, which ones are getting full requests, you know, full manuscript requests, um, and sort of move in that direction. But it's so, like, agents are so... Uh, individual, right? Uh, it's it's like an editor of a lit mag, right? It's like you have to know what is that agent interested in, um, which is not as easily knowable, I think, as like a lit mag. Like you can just look at a, you know, look at HAD or whatever and be like, oh, I get what they are looking for. But for an agent, usually it's like this kind of thing, maybe, I think, <laughs> you know. Um, That's when you have to go all internet stalker and kind of figure out how to woo it's them. It's true. It is true. Yeah. Like, it works, I swear to God. <laughs> like, if I if I go through my Malden House manuscript submissions, the people mm-hmm. that get my attention are the ones who actually say something that they, they know about yes. me. Not in a stalkery yes. way. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, you know what I was going to like to read. Thank you, I'll keep going exactly. on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, this has become wildly popular from what I've seen on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not going to call it X, the app formerly known as Oh, Twitter. yeah. I, I, Please don't. Are weird. Yeah. yeah. So how thrilled are you are like with the reception? I mean, it's, I, I'm glad it's out there. I'm glad people... Well, part... So, <laughs> I was going to say I'm glad people are reading it, but I'm also like... I'm like, do people actually have to read it? Like, can I just like... Can people just buy copies and then not read it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you feel that way whenever you send something out into the world, but it's just oh, like I this do. thing I've written. I'm just like, oh, people are reading it now. Like, oh, I don't want that to happen. Um, like, buy it, please. But if someone read it or not, based on their reactions when they're around you, can't you? 
That's probably, yeah, that is true. Yeah, you kind of can. Like yeah. they suddenly are talking to you in a little bit of a different way. Like they know something. Yeah. Like, oh, interesting. Like, oh, is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'm thrilled that it's out. Um, I've, you know, it seems like it's been, you know, it's had some good reception, done some, some fun events at different places. Um, doing podcasts, obviously that's always fun. Right. Um, yeah. What kind of events have you been doing? Like just readings or? Uh, doing some readings. Like, so I live out, just outside of DC. So I've done some, uh, I did an event at Kramer's books, which is in DC. And, um, I did a reading at, I don't know if you know, Andrew Bertina. He's, um, like a, a writer in the DC area. He holds these readings at his house. I just did a reading there. Um, Those I did an event. The best readings. That was honestly like the best. Yeah. Um, it was so much fun, especially, I, I always feel like with readings, I was telling Andrew this too. I was like, the best readings I think are when there's multiple readers, it's not just one author's event where they're reading from their book. Um, cause I, I don't know. I always kind of get bored, honestly, of reading. So I'm like, I'd rather hear the writer talk about their book. Um, but if you have multiple people, it's just a bigger, A, it's a bigger draw and B, you just have this wider variety of voices and kind of get a sampling of, of all these different projects. So that's always I mean, fun. I was doing one of those last weekend, this weekend, I don't know. One of these days I was doing a reading and it was for someone else's literary event, but they didn't read at all. Ah, interesting. Okay. Huh. Yeah. They're like, this is my book event. All right, everybody pay attention wow. to these writers. I was like, huh. are you, are you serious? Like I thought you were supposed to be on stage reading with us. What? That's kind of an interesting, like, it's an interesting move. I'm like, does that, do I like that? Or is that kind of annoying? I don't know. <laughs> there was a moment in my like mind where I was like, as a writer, do I get to pull this? Like, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, can, can Everybody I else just hang read. and be like, everyone else read. This is for me. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but then I heard of another thing that people do where they'll invite a bunch of writers and they'll read from your book instead of uh, that's interesting. Do you think you could trust someone else to read from this and actually get it right like the tone i mean probably you know uh, i guess it depends on who right um but i think so uh that'd be interesting uh, yeah huh. you should do it that'd be fun it's fun to like i imagine picking like such a wide array of like choices like people that like don't even seem like they'd be in the same vibe pick like a really hardcore punk person and then oh uh, yeah do the most uptight person you know that could be really fun. Huh. Yeah, think about that. I have one friend who said that if I ever do it, they'll read it in Russian. And I was like, awesome. Ah, okay. Make it extra intriguing. Finish the translation and try to sell the rights, right? <laughs> <laughs> so are there any events you have left that you're going to be doing? Um, I am recording. I'm doing a podcast for the lives of writers. Uh, I'm going to record that on Friday. Um, and then I think that might be it for now. Um, I was telling some, some people, I was like, at some point, like all this stuff is going to dry up and I'm going to be like, does anybody remember this book? You know, <laughs> please, please remember this book, you know? Um, but, uh, but it's been fun, you know? I mean, you're doing your victory lap. You gotta do that. Exactly. You know? And then a couple of years from now, you'll be like, Hey, everybody remember this book. And then you like reboot it basically. Yeah. I mean, Hey, maybe if I, if my next book sells really big now you know some big five is gonna 
buy the rights, you know. <laughs> big five, big four, eventually just what, whatever big. it is, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the big, the big one. Are you working on anything else right now? I'm work. Uh, well, actually, well, so I have not actively, I should say, because <laughs> um, I, I do need to get back into into writing. Um, but I am working on a novel. Um, this one's about the CIA. Uh, so it's kind of it's about this brother relationship. But this brother goes essentially the the plot right now. This may change. Who knows, right? The brother uh, worked for the CIA. The other brother learns that his one brother has died. He goes to Central Asia, which is where he was stationed, to like deal with the death and like talk to his widow and stuff, and learns that his brother was, isn't dead, but is actually wanted by both the U.S. and the Central Asian governments. And so it's about, it's about like the lengths that governments will go to kind of protect their secrets, but also about this brother relationship. Um, so I usually I, I tell people like. Um, like Gloria Patri was really influenced by uh, Dennis Johnson's novel Angels in a lot of ways. Um, and this one that I'm working on is really influenced by Tree of Smoke, if you read that one. but mm. so. No, I definitely, yeah. I will say it seems like it'd be a much more interesting movie, I hate to admit. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be like, make this in a book, then also write the well, screenplay. So it all goes to you still. Then maybe I will. I don't know. Or are you one of those like purists who's like, Fuck movies. Uh, I'm I'm not like I would be happy if somebody wanted to, you know, buy the rights to my books or stories. I I have written well co-wrote I co-wrote a, a short script based on a, a short story I'd written. Co-wrote it with my brother-in-law, and after the strike is over, we're gonna try to try to make it. Um, but that was an interesting experience, like writing a script version of a short story. I was like, I don't know if I. I don't know if I liked it or, or I didn't like it because all of this sort of interiority of the story, I have to convey through like dialogue or completely reimagine it essentially. Um, so it was, it was like, it's it was an interesting experiment. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. So I was like, do I like this? I don't know. Maybe, but. It's almost like rewiring your brain where it's like, it's yes. an entirely different vibe. No, I've definitely done that before. So impressive, especially short story. Yeah. You're getting snaps from me. Nice. <laughs> I say snaps because someone did that at the last reading I was at, and I was just like, people still do that? <laughs> I know, right? I was like, wait, wasn't that like 2012? <laughs> or I, I, I guess remember. the I 60s like, or whatever. I don't know. One of the writers was snapping for themselves. And I for was themselves? Like, wow, okay. And like hmm. then people started snapping, and I was like, all right. Huh. All right. I'm just like okay. standing next to this person. I'm like, <laughs> this is what we do now. We're, this is what we're doing. What is like the weirdest reaction you've had to your writing? The weirdest or have you reaction. Not had one yet. Um, I don't know if I've really had one. That's an interesting question. Um, I think like not necessarily the weirdest reaction because I knew like I knew going in this was going to be true. I think that parts of Gloria Patri are actually really funny because um, these people are like. Lunatics, I think. I <laughs> um, some dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but like during the readings, like I, things that I was like, oh, I think this is really funny. Um, they were like, oh, this is serious. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I was like, I, I was kind of expecting that, just because the the story as a whole isn't like, oh, this is like a funny novel. You know, it just kind of has like a few moments of like, this is ridiculous. You know. Do you think like 
you need to like do better like voice inflections to do that or I don't know maybe uh it also might honestly be just the short because the readings I've done haven't been super long like even the solo event I did at Kramer's books was I I only read for 10 minutes and that was like I did a section for five minutes and a different section of the book for another five minutes uh and so they're like really short sections but they were also like set up like I had to set up what the book was about and the book is about some really like dark stuff so I think like people are just in that in that space as I'm reading of like this is not a funny book you know so you should have someone standing behind you with like yeah. a poster that says laugh exactly yes yeah, yeah. like you're a sitcom so you obviously did an off the record for this and you picked mm-hmm. one song and everything I think this is actually a much better exercise based off what you just said, because I think obviously songs denote emotion that you might not be picking up. Otherwise, if you were to make a more complete soundtrack for this book, what would you use? Huh. Um, I knew I threw that one at you. Yes. Um, Well, so that's an interesting question because I almost never, I, I almost entirely write to silence maybe white noise. Um, but for this book, for this book, I actually wrote to, uh, almost exclusively two different, um, film scores. Uh, one was the soundtrack to the movie prisoners with Jake Gyllenhaal. And then the other was the soundtrack to hell or high water that Nick cave. He wrote the score for that one. Um, and so those two are like in my mind as I'm like reading the book. I'm like, okay, I remember writing this scene to like this piece of music or whatever. Um, but there is also I kept I like a list. Some Nick Cave going on in the background, so yeah. Yeah, I kept a list of like songs that I was like, I called it like made this like playlist called ending songs of like if this were a movie, like what song would play at the end? So there's like like Alt J, Radiohead. Uh, what else is on here? Glenn Hansard, Me Without You, um, you know, Neutral Milk Hotel, and those sorts yeah, of I people. I see that one. Yeah. Yeah. I was like trying to be like, who do I see? Who do I see? That was one that I was like, all right, I get that one. There's a song that they wrote called Naomi that I was like, oh, that would be interesting. But. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a really great vibe. Yeah. Do you have any like intro songs like to like wrap somebody into it do you ever think that hmm. i don't know uh i don't think so because it opens with that you know uh, well, it's not really a spoiler it's the opening of the book uh it opens with uh, that barn being on fire um so it's sort of like a more like i don't know action oriented piece fire screaming yeah um so like maybe like um like, This Will Destroy You has some songs that, like, get into, like, noise, kind of, like, just, like, all-out noise kind of stuff, right? Um, so maybe something like that. I don't know. That's always fun. No, I, I, I can vibe that. So, what is the most polarizing book that you've been reading lately? Because this is a very polarizing. Like, this book right here <laughs> is about uh-huh. polarizing subjects. Yes, so yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of one of those, so what fringe stuff are you dealing with right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, uh, 
right now is different from like what I read to sort of research this book. Um, like right now I'm reading a bunch of books on the CIA, which all of those books are going to be like, uh, controversial on some level. Right. Um, because it's like, well, who's, who's the one telling the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but for this book, like some of the stuff that I read, like I read, um, I remember reading a book, um, by Sue Klebold, who her son, Dylan Klebold was one of the Columbine shooters. And it was called like a mother's reckoning or something like that. Um, and it was really interesting. And I, I thought it was really moving in a lot of ways. Um, because it was sort of like, she was coming to terms with both like the fact that she had no kind of conception that her son was capable of doing this thing, but then also realizing that like all of the signs were there kind of in front of her and coming to grips with like feeling guilt for the victims and the victims' families and all this stuff. Uh, and so that was, that was hugely influential for when I was writing, especially the character of Ruth in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be, you know, when I, when I picked that book up, I was like, I wonder what, I wonder what people think of this book. Cause it is, it feels like, I don't know, controversial on, on some level of like trying to find some level of empathy for the Klebold family. But I think like the book wrestles with some of that too, of like, the signs are there, you know, you're sort of blind to them. And so there's a culpability to it, to you. But, you know, there was an empathy that I was trying to find um, as well. So. Did you have to, like, do any research? Uh, well, other, I mean, like, other than, like, reading a bunch of books. <laughs> um, I read, like, a whole bunch of books on different topics. Um, so, like, the, the I guess the biggest research... Uh, I don't know, areas that I did would be for the, like the militia element, because I wasn't as familiar with some of the ins and outs there. Um, So I remember reading a book, I think it's called Shadowlands. It's about the Oregon standoff and this guy, Ammon Bundy, uh, who was a big influence on a character named Amos Bernard in the book, um, as you might guess by their names. Um, (laughs) uh, And the weirdness of like the worldview of, of like him and his followers. And then I got from there, I kind of moved into like, I don't know if you've heard of sovereign citizens. It's like a really bizarre fringe group, um, that essentially believes the government is like, you can sort of outwit the government by phrasing things in certain ways. And so like a lot of Solomon's letter at the beginning, when he's like spelling his name in this weird way that comes directly from like sovereign citizens, which is a real thing. Um, and, uh, so, so different you things like that. Go all over the place because I mean, obviously, the Oregon uh-huh. thing that was more recent, right? Yes. Uh huh. But sovereign citizens—that's yeah. from a while back. That's been around. It's still it's still around. It's been around for a while. Um, but then it also like there was another element that did go back. I think into maybe even the late '90s, early 2000s. I'm not sure, but it was the so like this militia group finds out in the Oregon woods a kind of disused missile silo from the U S government and they set up camp there. Cause like nobody's using it. And so that actually came from a YouTube t- documentary. I found about, it was like random. I don't even know how I found this. I wasn't looking for it, but it was about like the biggest LSD heist in history from the FBI or something like that. And it was like this guy found a disused missile silo in like Kansas and set up this huge LSD manufacturing and distribution thing there. Um, 
What is and the name of this video? Because I'd like to watch. I don't remember. Let me look. Let me see if I can find it. Because uh, I'm like, caught yeah. caught my interest immediately. <laughs> William Leonard Picard is his name. Um, so you can probably find it from there. But yeah, this guy like set up this huge LSD you know, thing in this missile silo. And I was like, that is a really interesting setting, I think, for this story. So I, I kind of borrowed that or stole it for the story. Um, because I was, I was like, that's, it kind of ties into, you know, in the book they talk about, like, the government just keeps abandoning things. They don't actually use things fully as they should or whatever. So it sort of tied into some some themes of the book. But Did you do any research, like, into, like, the Patriot Movement that happened after Waco, stuff like that? Yeah, so, like, a lot of it also was, like, kind of tracing, going back in time and tracing like how we got to kind of where we are now with like Proud Boys and Three Percenters and Oath Keepers and all this stuff. So like you can see the trajectory of like from Waco to, you know, Ruby Ridge and Waco to today because essentially the government mishandled, I think, in a lot of ways, these scenarios early on, early on, quote unquote. This has been going on for decades before this, but like Waco and Ruby Ridge really is what I think ignited a lot of... um what we're seeing now and it's it's only it's only grown right mm -hmm. um and so so i did go back you know did a whole bunch of research on like those um moments in history oklahoma bombing all that stuff i'm actually reading because i'm also i decided to google patriot movement to make sure that i actually had my like names right and it said that um because of the nomination of barack obama it caused the movement to come roaring back it's like, oh hey. yes yeah there's a book out actually by uh, a buddy I went to college with, uh, Wesley Lowry. It's called American White Lash. It's really good. It's uh, essentially about exactly that, about how the election of Barack Obama is really what uh, ignited all of this to really kick off to what we're seeing now. It has been sort of bubbling under the surface, but that's really the, the moment that ignited a whole bunch of this. Every action has a equally powerful reaction. Yeah. And those racist people never went anywhere. We just started <laughs> ignoring them instead. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And now they're, yeah. And they've always had the guns. We just were like, hey, we're just going to pretend you don't have them anymore. We're going to pretend that international terrorism is a bigger deal because we don't want to deal with the shit here at home. And they're emboldened, too, by, like, it's not just that we ignored them, but they were, uh, they were sort of sidelined because, you know, from a, a high-level political state, we were not acknowledging them. We were, you know, pushing back against them. But the more, you know, allies they have in those high-level political stations, the more emboldened they feel. And so that's why you're seeing all of these, like, you know, lone wolves, so to speak, the actions, you know, shootings and all this stuff. But It is so interesting that you read about Dylan Klebold. I know you said lone wolf, so I had to just jump on in there. Yeah. Do you feel that it was literally just Eric Harris and then obviously his own psychological issues, or do you think that he had any motive at all? You mean like Dylan? Yeah. I, I think absolutely. I think both Dylan and Eric are absolutely like culpable for this event. You know, uh, it is very interesting when you kind of dig in and realize and see the effect that one had on the other, you know, um, which is sort of 
kind of part of what I was getting at in this book of like Andrew and Solomon, the effect they had on each other, like they're sort of amping each other up to the next level within this group. And you get to a certain point where like you can't, you can't back down, you can't leave, you know? Um, but absolutely. I think like um, the empathy that I was going for, because early on, very early on, I realized I was like, I don't want to give any sort of air, air time or space or whatever to the viewpoints of Richard or Solomon. Um, and I was sort of inspired, I don't know, inspired maybe as a grandiose word, but I, I had read, you know, a number of years ago, the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. And that, uh, that book really intrigued me because it's about five women, four daughters and one mother, but it's really about like the father of this family, the, the patriarch of the family, but you never hear from him. It's always like the perspective of these five women. Um, and so I, I, that really intrigued me as a, as a sort of a storytelling device. And I was like, I wonder if there's a way to tell this story that in some ways is really about like Richard and Solomon, but like you never hear from them. Mm-hmm. So do you think you'll be doing anything else to help push this book or? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm doing kind of as much as I, as much as I can, uh, you know, so like podcasts and book clubs and, um, I liked your little trailer. Yeah. That was fun. Ah, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. But yeah. Who made that by the way? That was that you? That was me. Yeah. That was just me. And like, uh, I forget what website I used, but it was like all free, like footage. Um, and so I just kind of put it together. I was like, Oh, this is, interesting i don't know but do you like a re like you know how they always do like a remix trailers for movies do a remix now ah yeah that'd be interesting yeah, yeah. and then like yeah. now you get to hear like people's like critic reviews and everything you could throw those in that's true yeah yeah i'm giving you good advice i said you are. actually don't listen <laughs> <laughs> but no I, I really do love hearing all about this, and I really hope that people read this because I think it's really good. Well, thank you. I yeah. appreciate and that. I don't think enough people in the small lit community are actually talking about politics in such a more uh, nuanced way. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Everyone seems to be very black and white, and I can imagine that this is a book that, I don't know, would upset the black and white people. Mm. What do you think? I don't know. Like, I hope, uh, I hope, n- well, I don't know. Like, I hope not, I guess, on one empathy. level. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm like, I, I, and a lot of that, I think, stems from, so like, uh, you know, I've talked, I've already talked about Dennis Johnson, but like, Dennis Johnson is, you know, hands down, like, my biggest writing influence. I just love the way he was able to, um, write characters that are, you know, extraordinarily flawed, um, and not even just flawed, but like, um, in some ways like despicable, but like allow room for the question of like, is redemption even possible for these people? Right. Um, and so I, I tried to, I, I tried to write a book that kind of grappled with that question of like, what, what does culpability look like? What does redemption look like? Is it possible? Um, and so I sort of was writing it through the perspective of, you know, these three characters, but especially Naomi, like Naomi at the end is really grappling with, you know, when she goes back to see her dad, um, grappling with like, is that, is, is forgiveness even an, on the table, you know, um, like, you know, and what would that even look like if it was right? Mm-hmm. So 
I think you definitely did everything in a great way. I mean, you were definitely walking a very straddling, you're straddling a line there, and you did good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. So, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Uh, go buy the book. You know, you know where to find it, I'm sure. You can find it. Google it. Gloria Patri by Austin Ross. But, yeah. That is, like, the best, like, closing line ever. Just buy the book. Yeah, that's all I want. <laughs> Don't read it. Don't read it. Just, <laughs> Just buy, buy it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it on your shelf forever. But Don't ever yeah. send anything to Austin on the app known as X, previously known as Twitter. <laughs> he doesn't want to know you read it. Yes. Just I show him pictures of the book. Yeah. Thumbs up emoji. That's all I need. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for being on here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was a, a pleasure. All right. That was Austin Ross. Be sure to snag a copy of his novel, Gloria Patri, from Malarkey Books, and follow him on Twitter at Austin T. Ross. Yes, I am still refusing to call it X. Whatever. But be sure to check the show notes for all the proper spellings and links. And as always, please check out our Twitter at Pod Healing and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us support by going onto Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving us five-star reviews and subscribing to us. This is Valerie Smart. We'll be back next week with an off-the-record episode with Patrick Bard. Thanks for listening to the show.